Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Well, we're doing nothing more complicated than going for a walk on this week's episode through one of those parts of London whose layers include heavy industry and art and where a sort of benign surreality is very much in evidence where once they used to be one of the country's busiest docks. Join me for a ramble through London's Docklands. It's May the 2nd, 2014. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe and this is Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a stone throw from your front door. East London today, and uh, we're in that part of town where everything's new. Lots of sharp angles. We've got the Docklands Light Railway uh, going on here. In some ways, it might seem not a promising area to catch hold of important parts of London's history, but uh, that's until you start looking at some of the place names. Even the name of the station that we've just come from, East India, resounds with the uh, the past and the mercantile shipping of the area. With me, visual artist Gary Hunter. Hi. Morning. Morning, morning. So we've got some interesting stuff we're going to be looking at today. And when I say interesting, uh, we're going to be stretching that term very widely to include uh, even chewing gum. That's right, yeah. We've just had a look at a piece by Ben Wilson, who's the infamous chewing gum artist, who uh, quite often seen lying on the pavement all over London, mistakenly seen for a drunk or somebody who's collapsed, but actually he's working as an artist. He's painting chewing gum on the pavement. So I asked him to construct a trail of chewing gum art from East India Dock DLR to Trinity Boy Wharf, which is where I have my studio, and I run an artist's residency program. So uh, if you look very carefully when you come out of the DLR East India, you can spot all of these little miniature paintings on the side of the pavement. And we were very lucky when we put them down because they'd only changed the paving stones two weeks previously. So if you got the timing wrong, all of those would have disappeared. But they're still here two and a half years later. <laughs> they're one of those things, very much like Christian Nachl's mushrooms, that you become aware of without really realising it. And it's only when somebody points it out to you that you think, oh, yeah, I've been consuming those for a while. It's funny you should mention Christian because we have a collection of his mushrooms at the wharf, which you'll see later, some bright pink and purple ones, which is where the Predator Ferry runs across to uh, the O2, probably London's least well-known river crossing. Well, we'll be exploring that and much more as the show goes on. Now, I should say the Trinity Boy Wharf is one of these mythical places that I've heard a great deal about, but it's a bit of an emerald city. I've never actually found myself there. What is Trinity Boy Wharf? 
Well, I found it quite by accident when I got lost, when there were some road closures, and I came across it, and I've been enchanted by it ever since. Um, it, it went into disrepair in the 70s and 80s because there was no longer such a need for the, the giant bows and chains that were used in the maritime industry because really shipping had died out in the Thames. So uh, it was Urban Space Management who got the site in the late 90s and started to regenerate it. I mean, they've got a history of you know, looking after a lot of markets in London, such as Spitalfields, Camden Lock, Gabriel's Wharf. Trinity Boy Wharf is their, their main site now. And one of the ingenious ideas they came up with was to recycle shipping containers into artist studios. So we'll be seeing a lot of that later on as well. Uh, right, and staying keyed into that uh, idea of shipping and ports and so forth. Yeah, I mean, if we'd be standing on this spot, say, 50 years ago, we would have been swimming, you know, because this was part of the larger East India dock. It was the import and export dock. were absolutely huge. All of those buildings you can see over there, including Tower Hamlet's Town Hall behind there, that was all Dockland. There was, you know, and going back to Dickens' time, there was 10,000 ships on the, on the Thames every day. Can you imagine how busy it was? And now all we have left is the tiny little entrance dock, which luckily has become a nature reserve. So, that, you know, there's some semblance of what it must have looked like, but it's a tiny proportion of what it was at one time. Well, let's uh, head on down here. And I know you're uh, curating and you're, you're a visual artist. Well, what does your visual art uh, consist of? Well, I, I seem to not be able to get away from shipping containers. I've been working in one up in Newcastle, using that as a photographic studio, which has been sited outside of my, um, my old school, strange enough. So I was going back there 35 years after I'd left. And uh, that's part of a big uh, BBC project called The Great North Passion, which is uh, broadcast on Good Friday. We should say something about photography, I feel. Yes, well, I've been working in photography since 1980 when I left school, and it has gone through some massive changes. I feel a lot of the craft has gone out of it, really. Uh, digital is very instantaneous. It has its advantages, of course, but I l- really liked the struggle of not quite knowing what I was getting until I came back from the lab, and I think that made you work in a different way, really kind of pushed you to get the right result. Well, with digital, it's a little bit like colouring in book, you know, you sort of you do, the, you do the outline, and then in post-production you fill it in. What about the, the transmission of pictures? Because obviously that can be done uh, instantly. Uh, and almost as a reflex to uh, seeing something. Yeah, apparently there was more photographs taken in the last two years than there has been in the whole history of photography going back to 1839. So, I mean, the world is saturated with images now. And you know, I quite often wonder how many words is a picture worth now. It's certainly not a thousand, probably two or three. I must say I've, uh, I guess, encountered something not dissimilar in terms of writing my trade and the proliferation of blogs and Twitter and such like. How does the fact that everybody is now a photographer affect your line of work? Yeah, the fact that it's become uh, democratic at any access point I think is really good, but it's been devalued in the same way that the music business was, you know, where people don't want to pay for music, they don't want to pay for photographs anymore either, so it's become very difficult to make a living as a photographer, which is one of the reasons I've transmuted into visual art. I have more control of what I'm doing. And uh, it's less likely that people see my images on the web and can grab them and use them without paying. So we're heading through an area now which is a lot of tall residential buildings. As we look back over our shoulder, we can see the uh, terracotta-coloured vertical stripes on uh, two or three large tower blocks. And before us, the river at the end of Prime Meridian Walk. If you've been listening to the show for a couple of years, you'll know what Prime Meridian refers to. But, uh, Gary, for those listeners who've only just joined us... We're directly above Greenwich here on uh, North Degrees Longitude, is that right? Yes, I think it is. So, uh, yeah, either side of this, uh, you can go anywhere in the world and eventually get back to North Degrees. It's, uh, it's quite a spot, really, but uh, there's not much of a view until we get down to the river. We're right on the curve now. If you, um, if you do watch EastEnders, I mean, I don't myself, but the beginning credits 
we're right in the big, right in the middle of that graphic of the curve of the river. So that's exactly where we are, opposite the the O2. And we can see in the sidewalk here, there's a line made out of uh, paving. Presumably, if we point down that line, then the Greenwich should be somewhere on that track. Yeah, it's hidden around the curve of the river there. We're actually looking towards North Greenwich at the moment, but the river curves, so Greenwich is actually right in front of us, really. You just can't see it. As we mentioned many times on this show, this bit of the river is very deceptive, and you can never tell which way you're pointing. Let's see if we can spot any landmarks I think oh yes well an an enormous one emerging to our left as we get closer to the river the O2 there basking in the sunshine there's actually a walkway over the top of that now you can uh, strap yourself up like a mountaineer and go across the top so we can see if there's anybody up there have you done that yet I haven't no yeah there's some people up there oh yes I must say that structure has gradually found a place in my heart I used to think it was a incredibly ugly but there's there's something it's like a jellyfish that sort of positions itself in our town and I've become rather fond of it yeah it's maybe like some sort of dead insect but uh, I didn't like it when it was uh, you know called the dome because it was really just an ego trip for the Labour Party and I think since it's been rebranded the O2 it's become a lot more successful but it does need a damn good clean doesn't it look at the state of it it does really yeah and I think that sense that people want to go there makes a big difference as well isn't it I don't know if you find this but uh, knowing that somewhere is a go-to destination a centre of gravity actually makes a difference to how you perceive it it does it's been very well marketed whereas um, I don't think it was many people actually interested in going to the Millennium show no it was very much scoffed at and it went way over budget to about £800 million didn't it Across the river to our left there, there's what looks like a marina of some sort, and then the cable car a little further off. It's actually Trinity Boy Wharf, that's where the ah, uh, right. clippers, you see, so we can see it from here. You can just see the lighthouse peeping out next to some of the container buildings. Okay, now that's not your tall red and white stripy thing sitting on an outcrop of rocks. This is a much more modest thing. I think it might be red and white all the same, but... Yeah, it was Michael Faraday's experimental lighthouse, so it never really had any practical use on the river. I mean, you don't really need a lighthouse here. It's on... Um, the River Lee, where it meets the Thames. So he would test out his lighting there, and then it'd be, it would be rolled out to all of the Trinity houses, lighthouses around the country. So, um, yeah, that, that was where he did a lot of his electromagnetic experiments as well, not just with lighting. So, uh, yeah, the lighthouse has got a piece of music installed, which lasts a 1,000 years. It's composed by Jem Finer, who was formerly in the Pogues. That's open every weekend afternoon, and you can go in there and hear this randomly sampled uh, score, which is impressively resonant when you get right to the top of the lighthouse it really does you know ring round there it sounds absolutely fantastic well, we've been talking about Greenwich and I seem to remember something very similar being described to me at Greenwich Observatory is it the same piece of music ah it's possible it was installed there I'm not really sure though hmm I wonder how many thousand year pieces of music yeah that's true it, it has um, had a live performance at Camden Roundhouse and they used those um, Buddhist bowls that you know that are prevalent in sort of uh, monasteries in Asia there's one other thing we should point out. That's, uh, that section of a ship there is um, by Richard Wilson, the, the sculptor. I'm not sure if it's actually a studio or whether it's a piece of work. I mean, it probably is quite big inside. It almost defies description and would be pretty easy to miss, I'd suggest. You might think that it was a trick of perspective. Yeah. But it's uh, built into the outcrop of the, of the North Greenwich Peninsula. And it's the control cabin of what looks like a, a relatively large ocean-going vessel. And uh, the entire section of keel, a vertical slice through. And it's uh, somehow been embedded into the quayside by the looks of it. That's right, yeah. It looks like maybe an oil tanker or something like that, which are very long at the front, aren't they? 
Either that or it's the result of a terrible bit of work by the captain there. <laughs> yes, I remember I had some friends of mine who worked in the shipyards and uh, every time you put a chalk marking on a ship it meant cut it out, you know, the welder would come along and take it out and unfortunately people were playing football at uh, lunchtime and they, they chalked on a goalpost and of course somebody came along and cut out a section of a <laughs> brand new ship. <laughs> we're going to dodge around uh, we found a, a bit of a, an obstruction here part of the bank side has been closed off apparently there's some subsidence going on there so we're going to vector around uh, what, what do you feel about this area it seems rather unlovely to me yeah it's very boxy isn't it i, I was going to show you the, uh, the the monument to the first pioneers who went to virginia that sailed from here uh, it's not called Virginia Court, but that's about the only sort of reference to the heritage of the area. I mean, that's pretty typical of what happens around here with private landlords, is the close-off access to the river. So it's very difficult to actually walk down the whole section of the river. You know, it's, it's really frustrating that you have to keep going back into housing estates and coming out just to see a little bit of river, you know. I mean, it's, it'd be great if it was one long walk. Do you, do you mean they're closing it off permanently? Yeah, well, they've always got some excuse, like it's being developed, but uh, quite often they're closed off for 10 years or more, you know, and... I think that's a real shame. Well, this used to be one of the things with the area where the South Bank Centre and the Festival Hall is now. Before yeah. them, you couldn't process along the riverside at all, and so that, that really opened up the South Bank. Yeah, that's been an absolutely fantastic success, hasn't it? You know, it's so popular down there now. And, and you're right, when I came here first to London in the 1980s, it was pretty dead down there, really. Well, we've uh, moved back into the housing development here. There's plenty of it, I must say. This isn't an area I really have uh, cause to come to. And, in fact, maybe that's worth saying about Trinity Boy Wharf. Uh, is, it, is it difficult to get to? Is it difficult to get people to come to? It can be. I mean, it's really easy on a nice, fine summer's day to get people out there. And that's why we have events, really, to attract people to come across. But I have to say, once people have found it, they always come back, you know, so they feel like they've discovered it for themselves, you know, this hidden gem on the River Thames. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic, really. Well, let's, let's make it easy for people then. What's the most straightforward way of getting there? The easiest way is to get the DLR to East India, and then we have some uh, stencil signs on the, on the cement posts under the DLR, so you follow that to the Lee Bridge crossing, and you go down into Orchard Place. We'll be getting there soon. What we're doing is we're installing a lot of different art down there, so, you know, murals, 3D sculptures, line the street. So, you know, it, it's sort of marks out the best route to get there that's that's the eventual ambition really now in, in terms of your role curating work at trinity boy wharf what is the remit that you're working to well because the, the site is really a sort of fantastic example of upcycling you know taking the containers into artist studios i like to work with artists who take waste materials and make them into artworks that seems to follow the whole ethos of what the place is about so I've had an artist from Iraq who's made uh, a coracle from uh, the kind of bin bags you get in a supermarket, the ones with holes that you put baguettes in. So what he did was he, he wove those into a coracle. I mean, it took him a long time. And the rationale behind that was plastic is an oil derivative, so it was all about how Iraq had been invaded you know, for the oil. It was a comment on that. So he took the coracle to the Tigris and paddled it up and down there, you know. So it was great to have this kind of international exchange going on. We've also had artists from Morocco, France, and in the summer we have an artist from Canada called Rodsworth, who, uh, he doesn't appear in Europe that often, but he's renowned in his home city of Montreal for creating awareness of accident black spots, especially for bicycles. So initially he would go out sort of at night and do these things very covertly, but uh, now he's, he's a celebrated artist and he gets commissions. So I think that's a nice story.
I'm not entirely sure what's happened, but at the beginning of the street, that last little section of, of conversation, we've moved from one end of a, a fairly short street to another. When we started off, it was all concrete and breeze block, and we're now in a, a sort of a verdant paradise. It's still the same road, but there are bushes and flowers blossoming. We can see a park just ahead of us. You can even smell a foliage and plant life on the air. It's, what's, what's going on? I think we're getting close to the nature reserve. So uh, I think that attracts a lot of uh, migrant birds and also a lot of the... Migrant flowers, I think. <laughs> migrant flowers, flora and fauna must be flowing over the wall and uh, seeding here as well. Through a set of security gates. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a shame really that these places are not really accessible by the public. But I'm glad we've seen it because it you know, puts it into context, really, and shows how special the other areas are that you can just go to yourself. You know? now, what does that uh, tell us? What are these gates all about? Is that just to keep it uh, secure for the residents? I think it reassures them. I mean, it's not going to keep anybody out, though. It's a flimsy little gate, isn't it, really? It's all about luxury apartments, isn't it? Do you know, if I hear that phrase just once more, I'm going to scream. The last thing we need is more luxury apartments. Yeah, absolutely. We're coming out onto the main road now. There is uh, a reference to Faraday there, Switch House, and then you have Faraday House. So they've kind of kept the names of what was going on around here, but you can't really tell by looking at it what used to happen here. You know, there's, there's no real celebration of the past. And beyond these few much newer-looking buildings, well, I'm not sure about this one on the end. This could be a, a 90s effort. But beyond those, we've got a roundabout, and then it's all about construction. We can see several tall residential blocks being put together cranes pepper the skyline a gas container it, it's uh, it looks as though we've had the nice bit no no we're definitely going to the nice bit ah. this is just transitional <laughs> when you look over there you see that's uh, that's where Tarhamlet's town hall is that's how far the dock used to go we just go right to the back of those buildings and all the way down here so you can imagine how big it must have been and now look how big it is when we go in here Right, well, here we are, East India Dock Basin and a set of wrought iron gates stand open. We're moving under an, an overpass, some kind of flyover. Uh, the smells assailing my nostril tells me that this is a convenient spot for people to pop in late at night when they uh, need to, before they get home. <laughs> well, it's not me. <laughs> and then we've got this lovely... We've got this lovely old chain railings along the waterside and you can quite easily see that this is where ships would be tied up. What's, what's the name? We're, we're looking at an enormous metal object bolted into the quayside. What, what's that called? Really, and it, like it's, it's made in Tyneside, so there's another connection between the Tyne and the Thames here. So th these would have really littered the whole side, really. But, I mean, what we're looking at is just a section of the entrance dock really I mean it's it's very small to what it must have been at one time but they have actually kept the gates of the dock there so we can go and have a look at those just taking this in for a moment it's quite difficult to absorb the contradictions that we can see on the horizon the cable car is now running across the backdrop of this we've got electricity pylons sort of highlighted there in a rather unusual ugly way some uh, brown brick 90s buildings hoardings that look as though they're ready to be knocked down and turned into something much nicer and a very naturey feeling dockside and then the foreground we've got um, those red rescue rings that you sometimes see at the waterside and they're floating in the water rather ominously and filled with 
detritus and, and uh, beer bottles and so forth. It's quite an odd spot. Yeah, these uh, wooden islands are made for terns. That's how they nest. So that's why they've been put there. But uh, in 1944, the Millbury Harbours were being built here, you know, the big oh, really? uh, sections, because when... Uh, when the Allies were landing on uh, Gold Beach, the water was too shallow to get the troop ships close to the land. So after the initial you know, invasion, they would uh, put these sections of concrete together to make floating harbours so the troops could get off the ships and get onto the beach easily. Does that mean then that the, the Mulberries were floated around, what, the Kent coast? Surely that's a yeah, hell of a long way. Yeah, there must have been, yeah. <laughs> I think some were built on the south coast as well. They, you know, they weren't just built in one, one area. Right. But there was a lot of them. And you can still see them if you go to the Normandy beach now. They're still there, washed up on the shore. So they lasted pretty well. I often find myself saying this on this show, but it doesn't seem like we could possibly be in London right now. Yeah, what a change from when you first arrived, eh? Well, you can hear, listener, I'm sure, the quiet, relatively speaking, in the background. City Airport's going to do its best to put pay to that peace and quiet. There's a cross-rail invasion there. They seem to just dig up anywhere they want, you know. What, is it going to pop up on that uh, on the shore of this? I don't think the trains are going to come out there, but maybe it's a ventilation shaft or something. Oh, right. <laughs> Quite looks suitable for that, does it? Swans. Some property of the Queen swimming past. I've got to say, that's the filthiest swan I've ever seen. It's a London swan, isn't it? it uh, the water quality looks pretty ropey there, doesn't it? Yeah, I know. There's a lot of mud in there, you know. Well, you know, with a, a, a bench or two extra back where we've just come, that would be quite a nice little spot for a sandwich. Yeah, if we look over to the left on the other side of the dock, uh, there's going to be a big development called London City Island. They've started building that now. That's going to be 1,600 new homes there, restaurants, all kinds of things. So that's going to change the dynamic of the area. It's going to be a lot busier then, I think. But that probably won't be finished for maybe four or five years. They've just, just begun. I struggle to know what to, what to feel about this place. Everything that's developing feels so dislocated from all the other stuff around. Yeah. I mean, there's a hell of a lot going on, really. I think once it's settled down, it'll be OK, you know, but it's going through a very transitional period. Right, yeah, it feels like it needs to knit together properly, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And the quayside raises here. Now we're getting close to the gates that Gary mentioned and as we round the corner wow we're hit by it's quite a view isn't it a go- yeah gorgeous view yeah of the uh, of the uh, dead insect there <laughs> dead porcupine maybe and a, a live porcupine <laughs> so what have we here well the thing we're standing next to now looks very much like a canal lock but on a, on a, a much bigger scale there's some sort of text there in the ironwork. we've come to the second set of gates you can actually walk across yeah it's pretty much high tide now but you know uh it's about a 25 foot drop when the tide goes out so it really is very tidal around here i mean we're getting close to the estuary our friends at thames clippers there pulling in just ahead of us here we go the East India Dock Basin, Grade 2, listed lock gates. And uh, here we find an information panel which shows just exactly what the East India Dock Basin looked like in the 1930s and also in the 1950s. And, uh, Gary, you weren't exaggerating. That's an, an incredible transformation, isn't it? Yeah. The entire dock pretty much has vanished. Yeah, I mean, my father would have been coming here in the 1940s when he was in the Merchant Navy, so it's quite interesting to think what he must have made of it, you know, when it was actually still working as a dock. I mean, it was the container... 
revolution that really changed maritime shipping. I mean, you know, the, the ships used to be in dock for maybe four to six weeks because they used to have to unload the whole hold, uh, clean it, and then put the new the, the new materials in there. So it took a long time. Containers now, you can offload a whole ship in half a day or a day. So it's, it's really knocked the romance out of uh, I was going to see, I think. There's something else in the background winding through the landscape um, here, and I'm not sure if that's the River Lee navigation. It is the River Lee, yeah. Ah, right. And then, and then at the back here, we can see... This is Bow Creek. Yeah. Bow Creek, yeah. Yep. So Bow Creek is part of the River Lee. You can see how it winds round. Now, this is another nature reserve here. and What, what is that called? Um, I think it's Bow Creek Ecology Island or something like that. Oh, right, yeah. yes, I think I've come across... So that's a little peninsula in yeah. this picture. Yeah, it's difficult to get to, though. There are, there are plans to build a bridge so there's easier access. <clears throat> but you really have to go to Canning Town, and then it's a bit of a cul-de-sac, so it doesn't get too many visitors, unfortunately. Which is probably perfect for a nature reserve. Yes, that's true. As long as the birds turn up, that's all right. <laughs> and there's, uh, there's another peninsula slightly bigger, um, further towards yep. the east. That is going to be... Uh, London City Island, that's the development that I mentioned earlier. Oh, right, that's okay. That yeah, so, so that really is isolated, is. Yeah. yeah. And then this is Orchard Place, the street that leads to the wharf. You can't quite see the wharf here. It's just cut off just about here. Okay. But there was a big fishing community here, I think, in the 19th century. It's quite well known. Oh, there's uh, information aplenty here. What can we learn about the East India Company that we don't already know, thanks to... Well, with the East India Company, suddenly the, uh, the opium dens of uh, Limehouse were renowned. And uh, I'm sure a lot of tea was coming in, but certainly not to the degree of the trade between China and India. So drugs of various grades. Yes, yeah. we were addicted to tea and still are as a nation, I think. Yeah. Well, this is a, a fine spot. And on a day like today where we've got lots of sunshine, it's a very pleasant place to be. Yeah, there's just some containers being towed along the river now. So, you know, you get the odd boat, but uh, it's, it's not a busy river, really, unfortunately. I'd like to see a lot more activity on it. Uh, that seems to be a sentiment expressed by lots of uh, people that we've spoken to on the show, uh, that the, the river's sadly underused, neglected, yeah. uh, a resource that, that could, you know, in the best possible way be exploited yeah, well, much, you, much more effectively. If you look at how the Germans use, say, the Rhine, I mean, uh, it's full of transport going up and down and, you know, it keeps the roads clear. It would be a practical solution to a lot of congestion, I think. We can see a, sh- a ship with a mast. Yes, you do occasionally get these sailing ships going past. So shall we wait and see what it is? I'm not sure if it's a pirate ship or not. <laughs> I, th- I think you'd be uh, moving back a little faster if you yes. genuinely suspect. True, true. And we're recording this on a weekday, around about the middle of the day, and there is nobody else around. I like there's one chap taking a stroll, but apart from that, I don't think I can see another human being. You, Gary, obviously. Okay. <laughs> if you consider me a human being, yeah. Um, it's really nice to see the view in the evening of Canary Wharf, but I'm really glad we're not too close to it, you know. I, I do find it a very sort of uh, clinical experience going there, really. I mean, it's still got some of the old buildings, the old facades along there. Yes, I was just looking at those. They, they're absolutely dwarfed by the yeah. tall structures around them, but I do like that. There's something... Um, they remind me a little bit of Amsterdam for some reason with their, their colours and yeah. their, their height. Well, Turner was a regular visitor here. He used to do a lot of paintings on the river at these points. And uh, the famous painting he did of the ship that came back after the Trafalgar, was that called A Fight in Temeraria? It's one of the most popular paintings in, uh, in the UK, isn't it? So it's interesting to think he would sit here with a drink, waiting for some inspiration to do a painting. Do you know, I'd never noticed that. That's a container thing, isn't it? A container unloader. Yeah, that must be left over from previous uses, because I've never seen any containers coming on or off that. 
bright yellow thing. I don't know yeah. how it's escaped my notice. I think there are there are a lot more container um, ports further down, you know, towards the estuary. I think they've built a new super container port now. But that's just specifically built for that, you know. And of course, they've got the space the further they get out of London. The masted ship is on its way past us. Uh, a nice bit of craftsmanship there. It looks as though it's largely uh, timber, the uppermost part. And it's flying a red duster, and it's flying a red duster, the merchant navy flag. I think that means attack. <laughs> it means we're delivering something. Ah, right. <laughs> well, you can hear that uh, it's. Uh, in fact, whilst you're able to hear the wind across the the mic, it's not as violent a gale as it sounds. It's quite a, a pleasant sort of breeze. It's nice and fresh. I mean, compared to when I I used to work right in the centre of town near Oxford Circus, I go back there now and I realise how congested and how polluted the place is. I never used to realise that when I was working here, working there. But now I'm here, I really appreciate the fresh air, you know, and the the quiet, really, you know. It's my age. (laughs) It's nice to know that you can actually find those qualities somewhere in town. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's why it's such a rare spot, I think, really. Because look at all the development that's going on way down the river, you know. They're kind of just about ruining everything, aren't they? You know? Transitional period. Yeah, well, Boris has these six magic wishes a year. He can just overrule any planning, can't he? You know, and just, it goes ahead. Now, hold on, what's it? I've never heard about this. No, I heard of, you know, I heard about Six this. wishes? Yeah, yeah, I think he's got a couple of genies in his office with lamps. But now the Saatchi building on Charlotte Street, even Camden Council objected to that. Boris overruled it, it's going to be redeveloped. So, uh, you know, no matter how much you object to a particular development, if, if it's going to go ahead, it's going to go ahead, you know. And, you know, places like Fitzrovia are being ruined, you know. Perfectly good buildings are being torn down and built up to maximise business rates and council tax income. Well, now seems as good a time as any to have a word from our sponsor where heading through greenery and we'll uh, listen and join you on the other side. Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to a CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolfe, and with me in East London, Gary Hunter. He's a visual artist, and he's brought me to a part of London to which I'm warming fast, both uh, literally and uh, in terms of my feeling about the place. So we're on East India Dock Basin, just a stone's throw away from the river, which we can see off to our left, the spines of the dome uh, looming over everything. And we're here, the only remaining part of the dock that's still got water in it. And uh, next to it is an information board that shows what the dock used to look like. And, well, goodness me, it's incredible the difference in this area, not just in the dock itself. Uh, the, the main difference being that the dock is still there. The big dock, it seems to be about three ships in width, and then I'd guess uh, maybe six, seven ships in length, if you can imagine that. That's the main dock, that's the import dock. And then there are other docks, I'm not sure if they're for fixing up the ships, they might be for uh, export or for something else. There's a couple of other smaller areas. And the picture that we're being shown here, a painting from 1804, represents this as a very busy place, easily accessible. The river itself supporting lots of river traffic, we can see sailboats there. But one of the biggest differences actually is in the surrounding lands which essentially are naked there's there's grass and there ain't nothing else london is entirely invisible of course the uh, the o2 isn't there but there's nothing else on that peninsula either and uh, essentially it's just uh, fields as far as the eye can see 
Yes, earlier we were talking about you know how, how much photography has changed. Now, I did a project with um, a biochemist, uh, Dr. Simon Park from Guildford University. What we did was we took just plain glass plates and we inserted them into the mud here in the basin, left them there for a month. He took them back to the lab and then exposed them to ultraviolet light and we created these abstract patterns out of the different types of bacteria that are collected on the plates. So it's going right back to the infancy of photography, you know, using glass plates to create abstract art. So that, that was a fantastic experiment there. So we'd have been seeing uh, deposits from the uh, the ground that we can see there, I presume? Yeah, I mean, things that have built up over the centuries, really. I mean, this pending's it's over 200 years old, you know. So there must be a lot of things which have just haven't moved there, they've kept in the mud, because you can see it's pretty dense in there, isn't it, you know? I find it very difficult to get my head around the level of change that's occurred in 200 years. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about the painting is there's no people. It must have been crawling with people on the docksides, you know, stevedores unloading, you know, people getting on. I mean, it's interesting. They've just concentrated on the look of the docks and the ships. There's nothing else in there, is there? Mm. So maybe the... Some warehouses, perhaps, yeah. Some warehouses, perhaps. I wonder if the omission of buildings further afield is just an artistic choice, then, rather than a factual one. Yeah, I think I've just noticed some people, but they're so small, they're difficult to see. Ah, yeah, we can see them... Uh, they're absolutely dwarfed by the size of these ships. These yeah. ships must have been enormous. And there's a, a coach and horses there. That's a, a four-horse coach by the looks of it, yeah. and it's minuscule. Well, very impressive. The jury's out as to uh, what was actually around it. Not very much by the looks of it. Um, let's say something about the uh, the bird life here, though, because uh, we can't help noticing that there are coots and terns and swans and ducks. It gets busy as well. Certainly a lot of the birds come over from Eastern Europe in the winter. So there's a lot more bird life then. You know, um, it's not just birds leaving the UK to go to sunnier climes. You do get a lot coming from colder, more local areas as well. And some colourful ones too. I, I never thought you'd be able to see a kingfisher in London, well, but it's alleged that we might yeah. be able to do that. Depends how long we stay here and how powerful our <laughs> binoculars are. We still haven't actually got to the main attraction yet. Let's try. No, no, we've been very delayed by all of the other interesting stuff on road. Now, as we pass across this rather barren bit of well I'm still going to call it a bit of grass although there's not much grass in evidence yeah it's parched land isn't it and we can see ah we're coming up to the a sign saying welcome to the Lee Valley it's official we're here yes this is still actually part of the Lee Valley it's the very end of it which goes all the way up past the Olympic Park and up into Hertfordshire and by the way, well worth a wonder if you uh, are of a mind to do so one Sunday afternoon. Yeah, I've done sections on a bicycle, but not the whole thing. Now, the gates here were made by Sir Anthony Caro, the uh, famous sculptor who was once an assistant to uh, Henry Moore. He unfortunately recently died, but uh, it's really nice to have one of his pieces actually here. You can see how solid that gate is. Good grief, yeah. a very interesting multi-layer thing you know those notebooks that you sometimes see at craft fairs that have been made out of leather folded in interesting ways it reminds me of those or some kind of medieval book Mm. and you can tell that art is present here there's a london black taxi cab with a tree growing out of it straight through the middle of the roof on a traffic island a traffic island made by the looks of it of old bricks. I'm not sure whether this is an authentic bit of roadway or whether it's been reconstructed out of reclaimed materials. It's been here for as long as I can remember the, the islands. The taxi sculpture which people are calling Cab Tree that's been there about two months. It's the most recent piece by Andrew Baldwin who is a regular at Trinity Boy Wharf. He makes kinetic sculptures which you can see more of when we actually get to the site. 
So uh, th- th- it was quite funny on April Fool's Day, somebody had put a parking ticket on there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it was a real one. <laughs> They'll try anything. Let's have a look. Can we see in here? No, mirrored glass on the window, so we can't see inside. What's the message he's embedding in this piece of art? Well, I don't think it takes long for nature to actually reclaim what's been left out to rot. I mean, I had a car which I left outside for 18 months and it became part of the ground. It was covered in moss. So that happened pretty quickly, I think. Mm. Well, you can never get away from the O2 there. On the fences, it looks as though we've got a, ooh, a, a tapestry made of plastics, perhaps. Very brightly coloured. And you're taking us to a particular position here to look at it from a, a certain angle. Yeah, I, I quite like seeing these. They're actual cable ties that have been spray-painted. So they've all been attached to uh, the fence. I quite like looking at it from the side, and you get you get a, an impression of how much work there is in that. You know, it was made by the Turnpike Lane Arts Group, and there's a connection between one of the artists and his grandfather, who actually worked here at the wharf. So he's put that down the side for William Ella. So that's a nice connection, isn't it, with the past? And it's one of those things that if you don't stop and look at it, then uh, you might not realise what's going on here because the inscription that you just mentioned looks very much like street graffiti. And, of course, we're used to seeing tags as part of graffiti yeah. and perhaps to ignoring those in favour of the, the bigger pictures, an example of which we can see on a, a plaster-covered wall just behind us. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we, we try and sort of you know, work with artists who are sympathetic to the area, really. And uh, we, we find by putting up street art, it, it makes a, a big, bold statement, really, about the area. And, um, you know, we don't go over other people's tags. Uh, you know, that's a territorial thing. And, you know, we, we just don't cover other people's work, and they don't touch art, so it seems to work, this mutual respect, really. How does that work? Because I know you've done a lot of graffiti photography, and you've produced at least one book on the, the yeah. subject. What is the relationship between, maybe it's the same people, I don't know, between uh, people who tag and uh, people who produce what we what i might consider to be art yeah i think graffiti tags are very local it's about saying i live here i work here and this is who i am you know in, in this kind of coded language of uh, of pseudonyms uh, street artists do the same thing they, they gen- generally leave stickers around to say that they're working in a particular area but they tend to work in places they don't really have studios although you know they travel around the world a lot of them and, and work all over the place and there's this mutual system where they help each other out really so you know they go and stay with each other or you know it's kind of everyone facilitates everybody else you know so it's a kind of it's a global sort of network of these big street artists you know who, who travel around and do the work is there a code of conduct in terms of how long you have to leave a piece up before somebody else uses that spot yeah there, there can be in certain places i mean it, it's generally accepted that if there's a, a good piece of work that everyone likes you, you just leave it alone but quite often you get somebody going along and just putting something really crazy on it you know which is not sympathetic to the piece at all and as soon as that happens it's kind of open season anybody can touch it then so it, you know it depends when the first action is of putting something else on the top but um you know i, th- I think a good piece like this people are going to respect it we're, we're uh, looking at a, at a picture i should say a headshot a portrait of a woman very very welsh looking maybe green eyes dark hair beautifully rendered yeah i mean this area is known as windy corner so you know the artist put it in a place where she's you know the wind is gently lifting her hair really but what i really like about it is uh he's made it look like it's been there forever you know the way he's actually put it on the on the concrete it's been there probably about nine months but it looks like it's been here for a long time doesn't it so we've got another object right next to us here and it's uh, it's colossal it's uh, seven or eight feet tall probably about the same in diameter it it looks uh, like it might be used as a bollard for the biggest ship you've ever seen i'm not sure and it says the trinity boy wharf on it what what is this thing this would have been floating in the thames tying up a very large ship yeah it's actually hollow oh right 
what a beast. And we've got a kingfisher with legs nearby. I mean, everywhere I look now, we're, we're, we're starting to spot things going on in the uh, brickwork. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these buildings have just been empty for years. So, um, you know, it, it, in the old window areas, we just thought we'd, we'd invite artists to put up work, you know, and it, it just brightens the place up. And, you know, it just kind of makes your day when you see something like that rather than just a blank wall. What was behind the... We're moving past several really large gateposts in a perimeter wall. What was on the other side of that previously? There's, there's certain usages which were kind of inherent for particular wharfs. So one would be for aggregates, and you can't use it for anything else like that. So I think that's probably the problem, is uh, they can't change the usage, which in some ways is good, because otherwise the whole area would be overdeveloped. So uh, if you can't offload that kind of material in these days, and you can't change the usage of the wharf, you can't use it, can you? Why is it not possible to change the usage? Because I think it will be within uh, the agreement with the local council or the, or the freeholder that that is how it's used. Perhaps the uh, Port of Thames Authority as well could be involved. Passing a uh, blue building with fish on it. Yeah, this is an old shop which was kind of in need of a, a bit of a paint job, really. So I invited an artist from uh, Wellington in New Zealand called uh, Bruce Mahalski to come over. He's actually a zoologist, so he knows all about the different breeds of fish. Uh, what I wanted him to look at was fish that have some kind of electrical current, like an eel and uh, all of these kind of different rays that have electric currents going through them. That links into the previous uses of the wharf by Michael Faraday and his electromagnetic uh, experimental lighthouse and workshops. Uh, also, the other link is to a satirical cartoon from about 200 years ago by William Heath, which was called Monster Soup. And uh, that was a comment on the terrible state of Thames water because it was being polluted by all of the ships on there. So uh, it shows a microscopic analysis of all these little creatures living in the Thames. So what we've done with this, we've called this electric soup, and that's in homage to William Heath's cartoon. Uh, listener, I'm fairly sure that a sperm whale with a light bulb in its mouth is not an official electrical animal. Yes, bit of an artistic f- <laughs> license on that one, I think. Well, we're now passing down. I'm, I'm astonished that we're able to hear ourselves. It's uh, a bit of a wind canyon if the wind got up, I'm sure, but it's good and calm. Really nice, solid feel. I guess this is what you'd imagine when you think about the streets behind the docks. Passing through uh, Orchard Place, where an enormous three-dimensional structure here of a fish hangs over the gateposts of an alleyway and this is very much like those large paper lanterns that you have in your front room but this is uh, about eight feet across and a little more intricate yeah it's using the japanese technique of stretching bamboo and then putting fabric over the top it's by an artist called peter hillary and that's a representation of a perch but obviously much bigger than you get them in real life <laughs> i don't think you needed to add that we're on the radio though people can't see it can they <laughs> That is a standard-sized perch for London. (laughs) And at the end of the lane here, we can see the sign for Trinity Boy Wharf. Well, listener, as we talk about visual art, it may be the case that you would like a visual representation of Gary Hunter and indeed our other guests on the show. And you can find that on Instagram or on all the social media, as the uh, the voice will now tell you. Londonist Out Loud is available free as a stream at Londonist.com or a weekly download via iTunes. Hit us up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, tweet at Londonist Sound, and check out images of our guests via the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram. Well, I think I've just walked 
through history. We've just come down uh, Orchard Place and, uh, wow, so many stories. I'm really happy to see that there are lots of information panels which look a little bit neglected. I, I'm not sure that this is being marketed as a tourist hotspot by any means, but the stories contained therein, uh, each one of them would almost certainly make up a, an episode of the show. We are going to revisit, we've decided, and give those the space they deserve. For now, though, we're looking at a little red lighthouse and a 1950s diner, which is about the last thing I expected to find around this corner. <laughs> That's actually a light ship, so it would be used to point out you know, wrecks temporarily that were uh, getting, in the other way of, getting in the way of other ships. It's now a recording studio, and next to it is uh, an original 1940s diner from New Jersey, which is uh, run by a man from Naples. So uh, you can get your diner food here. What sort of things does he serve up? Burgers well, he and very good burgers and chips, yeah. And uh, we also have another cafe called the Bow Creek Cafe. That's more sort of soups and kind of more wholesome kind of fare. So you've got a good choice of what to eat here. Well, I think I know where I'm going to end up. <laughs> wholesome, you say. Hmm. This must be the uh, the lighthouse that's, that they were looking at. That is uh, Faraday's experimental lighthouse. Yeah. This this is connected to. This is very much not a floating object. This is uh, made out of brown brick for about two thirds of its height, and then the uh, structure at the top that does the business end of things. Yeah, that's the chain store which has two sides, one facing the O2 which is used for big exhibitions uh, wedding receptions and then we have the back of the chain store which is the new parkour which is uh, a new free running school which opened about two months ago so that takes up a lot of space in there and it's become very popular so it's a great addition to the site Is parkour as of the moment as I suspect it to be? Well, it began in the sort of outdoor housing estates of Paris didn't it, as a way to escape the police so that's, that's, right. that's its origins, yeah. <laughs> it's, there's something uh, strange about it being institutionalised like this, then. Yeah, it's almost when you get something called a Ministry of Culture, it just seems to be going against what it's all about, doesn't it? Being so formalised. There's an, an object that we can't pass by here. I'll attempt to describe it for you, listener. I suppose if you imagine a cannon of the sort that has wheels on it so you can move it around on board ship, but instead of the barrel of the cannon, something a bit more like a three or four foot long gramophone horn. I, I think this could be agricultural, but I'd struggle to say what it's for. It's a recycled metal sculpture by Andrew Baldwin, who did uh, Cab Tree on Orchard Place. He's also got um, a bicycle sculpture here which is just outside my studio so he's done a very good impression of something that um, th- that looks as though it might have had a, a legitimate use yeah well, this uh, this here is from an old steam train you know the the part that connects the wheels up this is a much bigger object where next to it, interesting that he's uh that these are entirely rusted both of these yeah they only rust on the surface though i think it's something called coltan metal or it's that sort of process so it has um you know a, a patina of rust but it doesn't actually get through to the structure and at one end, a very large weight. Um, so large, in fact, that I don't think I'm going to risk standing underneath it. I'm sure it's perfectly safe, but <laughs> the thought is too much. And then at the other end, on the other end of a, an arm, it's the sort of thing that workmen stand in, and uh, it's, a, it's a box thing that they might stand in to go up and fix a street lamp. Yes, it is actually a working bicycle, though, and you can cycle up to my roof. And that's, that's the counterweight. It's actually hollow. It's not that heavy. <laughs> my descriptive powers are going to uh, to be challenged here. Yeah, this is more from uh, the collection we, we have on site uh, by Andrew Baldwin. The kinetic sculptures, which we get running uh, on open weekends, special occasions. Uh, the one on the right is a self-portrait. That's actually him. So when that's powered up, 
all of the pieces of his body come together and then slowly fall apart. So that's autobiographical in the sense that it's about his divorce. Uh, on, on the far left, we have a representation of his wife, which takes 600 revolutions to form the whole body there on the wheel. Uh, that's apparently a comment on her being very complicated. And these are very steampunk in essence. They are, absolutely, yeah. Uh, at the rear as well, there's a large pair of wings which gently undulate in the breeze when they're, when they're powered up as well. And what I suppose I've managed to miss because I'm looking at the fine detail is that the building behind them is entirely made out of shipping containers, brightly coloured, and with uh, gantries and balconies and portals aplenty. Yes, this was the second container city built about 10 years ago. If we look behind us, we've got the third one going up, sorry, the fourth one going up, which is going to be called Clipper House. That's going to be open in June with more artist studios. So uh, everyone's looking forward to that. If we walk behind, we can see the original Container City, which was built in the late 90s, just next to where English National Opera do all of their set building in this uh, former electricity generating building, which is very big. And this feels like a very uh, comfortable synchronicity between uh, the arts and and industry, which is, I I think it's... You see that in quite a few places, don't you, uh, around the world where uh, heavy industry or power generation or something has gone on. What's the connection between those two lines of work? I suppose they're both creative in their own ways, aren't they? You know, making an engine, building an engine, making a painting. I mean, they've still got a lot of of planning, a lot of skills are needed in the construction of both of those elements. I mean, in front of us, uh, we've got some of the smaller containers, which... uh, have music studios in them and since music has gone digital the uh, mixing desks are a lot more compact so it's amazing what you can actually fit into one of those well what a peculiar juxtaposition some of these uh, and the, the shipping containers although they're, they're not you know, that modern they do look strikingly new and shiny when set against the uh, brickwork of the older buildings that's true yeah I mean this building here which is uh, the Riverside building that is made of shipping containers but there's so much glass frontage on it you can't really tell that no, it originally was made of those you know and we so see that has the best views on site can you say that again that has the best views on site and we can see uh, Thames Clippers advertised there and indeed we've got Thames Clippers floating on the water here we're by the waterside now and uh, we could wander down and jump on the Putney to Blackfriars River bus. There's a couple of smaller vessels. Unfortunately, they don't stop here. They just store the ferries here. But you can get uh, a former police launch on weekdays called Predator 2, which takes you across to the O2 pier, and you can get up the river from there. So it's actually a very nice little trip you can do for a mere £2. Is that one of those high-speed-looking fellas? Well, we might be able to see it if we uh, go up on here. The name seems familiar to me. I think I've seen it dashing past somewhere on the river. I think it might be over the other side at the moment, but it runs quite regularly. I'll keep my eyes peeled. If, if there was one jewel in the crown here that we should look at before we drift off, and clearly there's uh, several days' worth of exploration here, far more than we can realistically fit into one podcast, but what's the prize here? Well, I mean, there's, there's so much it's difficult to choose, really. In, in terms of buildings, I think the chain store is the most impressive. Uh, currently... That's uh, hosting the BP Portrait Award collection, so there are so many paintings in there waiting to be collected that I think it's probably bigger than the National Portrait Gallery archives. There are thousands of paintings in there. So it's been quite interesting watching people walking around with paintings under their arms, you know, trying to find the DLR. (laughs) And there's what looks like a giant upside-down light bulb 
to our left on top of one of the containers and we're by the water's edge once more moving across I think I'm seeing some sort of ship's bell type uh, object here yes this is the time and tide bell and when uh, when the water rises it actually rings and we should explain it's uh, on the the water side of the river wall that's right yeah and uh, I think that goes back to when you know people in this country used to warn of Viking invasion they used to ring bells and all run for sanctuary we're moving through the parking lot here we can see oh I've just noticed uh, rail lines under our feet presumably this is where the the cranes would have uh, run back and forth on these rails and again sculptures and structures here using pieces of dockyard and industrial machinery to uh, turn into art it's quite surreal in some respects yeah, so this is the River Lee here, where the lightship is, and then that hits the Thames on the corner. So we're at the juncture of those two rivers. I should point out that we have a primary school there as well, which has the playground on the roof. You have a primary containers, school. Containers with clouds cut out of them. <laughs> and then next to that we have the Princess Drawing School, where you can do foundation art courses. Tell me about the primary... How did the primary school happen? I'm not really sure. <laughs> I mean, all, all the rest of it I get, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's very popular. They're expanding all the time. They're taking over the whole building now. No, what, what's the deal, though? Were, were they here before and they had to be uh, given no, a home? Or? No, no, they've, they've been here maybe, I don't know, seven or eight years. Before I arrived, I think. I shall have to dig deeper on that one. Well, we've done a full circuit now, and we're heading into the boiler house. Yes, this uh, was built in 1954. This is the building I use as my studio, and I also opened it up on the first weekend of the month. Uh, from March until October. I have uh, changing exhibitions of artist work and also artist books are available. So uh, it's open between 11am and 5pm on the first weekend of the month. So it uh, be good to see you over here. Let's deposit you in your place of work. The heavy padlock is coming off the door. looks to me as though the electric fan over our heads is probably an original feature from 54. I would think so, yeah. This building's been through uh, various uses. It was uh, used by electricians who, uh, you know, made a lot of big objects in here uh, after it was the boiler house and then became a music studio. And now it's a visual art studio and uh, exhibition area that I run here at Trinity Boy Wolf. It goes without saying, I'm, I'm sure you're imagining it for yourself, listener, that every spare surface is covered with images and uh, different textures and colours. There are, of course, a pair of mannequins' legs by the door. What else would you expect? I must show you the pot noodle drum. <laughs> oh, here it is. Okay. <laughs> this is a dream. If, uh, if you were one of those kids who liked to play with Technic Lego, um, then this is for you. The sound you just heard was being played, of course, on the lid of a pot noodle. Yeah, it's not good to use when you're hungry because it takes about three hours to get through the lid. Now, this is a piece by Alex Almont, who was one of our resident artists in 2013. He's based in Oxford, so he came down for a few weeks and uh, constructed synthesizers made out of Lego parts. Uh, Lego music machines going through guitar pedals. I mean, it was incredible, ranging from the tonal to uh, the rhythmic, you know, absolutely incredible. So uh, I like the fact that, it, you know, why would you go to the effort of making that to open a pot noodle? But then again, why not? 
Um, well, look, there's some more art here than we can shake a stick at, and I can only urge you, listener, to come down and, and take a look at what's here. What is the uh, setup? I mean, are you open uh, sort of all day, every day, or how does it work? No, just the first weekend of the month is, uh, is the main time we're open. Uh, our next exhibition on uh, the first weekend of May is called Violent Tendencies. It's a painting show by Graham Carrick and Aaron Fordwell. And then we have a special event on Saturday, the 17th of May which is called Urban Shakedown. That will be a collection of street artists taking over the site. There will be a big exhibition in the Electrician's Workshop, which is a 4,500 square foot exhibition space just behind my studio. So that's one not to miss, really. And I presume there's a a website where people can find out about this stuff. Yes, that would be trinityboywharf.com. You can get all the information on how to get here and what's going on over the coming months. Well, listener, I hope we've whetted your appetite. If you like this kind of thing, you'll like this kind of thing. (laughs) Um, Do come and have a look. It really does reward a visit. And as I say, I think we're going to have to make a revisit because what we've uncovered by accident in terms of the history of the area really can't be crammed into uh, this episode. So we'll be back and we'll be finding out, I suspect, about uh, things like the Princess Alice and boats exploding with their uh, builders upon them and so forth, even a a hostel for uh, asylum seekers and people going out to uh, Australia and New Zealand, all sorts of stuff. But for now, Gary Hunter, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for coming, and uh, we'll head over to the diner for a burger before you go. Oh, yes, that's okay. <laughs> My heart aches and that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Gary Hunter. Thanks too to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm then Quentin Wolfe. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com listen. Shopify.com listen.